1: That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and member FDIC.
0: When the band entered the studio to continue to record Moondog Matinee, they switched locations. This time, they flew out to Capital Studios to finish their last few songs. It was during their early sessions that George Harrison came for an unexpected visit. He was recording with Ringo and wanted to know if the band would like to play on the song that they were working on. The next evening, they all met at Sunset Sound and recorded Sunshine Life For Me, Sail Away Raymond, released on Ringo's 1973 album, Ringo. While writing the song, George was inspired by the Irish folk music as he was vacationing in Ireland with his wife, Patti Boyd. The track also features aspects of country, hootenanny, and the sea shanty tradition. The Raymond name in the song title was a reference to the lawyer hired by Alan Klein, the manager of Harrison, Starr, and John Lennon, to represent the three Beatles at Apple Corps in high court by an action initiated by Paul McCartney. Sunshine Life For Me is a 4-4 time and is in the musical key of E. Rather than using the formal chord changes, the melody is established through a modal riff over a constant E major chord. Harrison biographer Stephen Lang considered the song to be musically an homage to the spirit of Rag Mama Rag by the band. Harrison had drawn inspiration from the band's focus on traditional song forms during the final years of the Beatles' career. And star biographer Alan Clayson deemed it a hootenanny hoedown. While Beatles scholar Michael Frontani writes, it's an authentic country bluegrass mood. The composition ends with multiple vocal parts staggering the chorus lines. The band occupies multiple roles on the song, from Robbie's playing of guitar, Rick's playing of fiddle, Levon playing of the mandolin, with George Harrison playing guitar, Ringo providing drums and vocal, and longtime Beatle friend and collaborator, Klaus Vorman on bass, David Bromberg on banjo, and Vinnie Poncia on backing vocals. Take a listen here. Album was released, the song received mixed reviews. In his book The Beatles Solo on Apple Records, Bruce Spitzer described the first 5 tracks on Ringo's album as one of the strongest sides produced by an ex-Beatle. In Beatles biographer Nicholas Schaffner suggested that with this song Harrison had managed to be amusing for the first time in years. However, less impressed, Michael Benton of Disc found that the song represented a somewhat subdued patch between the obvious hits in Photograph and Year 16. And Alan Beatrock of Phonograph Records dismissed it as Muzak without definition. Ian Inglis writes Sunshine Life for Me, the result is a convincing piece of good time folk rock that would have been at home on Fairport Convention's groundbreaking album Legion Leaf, which was itself hugely influenced by the spirit of the band's music from Big Pink. The impression lingers that the track was as much fun to make as it is to hear. And with that, the band was back focusing on their own album that they were trying to release. And to open side two of Moondog Matinee is Chuck Berry's tune, Promised Land. I left my home in North Florida, Virginia, California, on my mind. I straddled
1: at Greyhound and rode him into Raleigh and on across Carolina. We stopped in Charlotte, we bypassed Rock Hill. We never was a minute late. We were 90 miles Sundown out of we
0: had the lyrics were written by Chuck Berry to the melody of the traditional folk song, Wabash Cannonball, which was one of the first songs the Carter family ever recorded in 1929 and was released later in 1932. Berry released Promised Land in 1964 on his album St. Louis to Liverpool. It happened to be the first song released after he was in prison and hit number 41 on the Billboard charts. Barry had written the song in prison by borrowing the prison library atlas to plot his lyrics. He later said this on writing the song. I remember having extreme difficulty in writing Promised Land and trying to secure a road atlas of the United States to verify the routing of the boy from Norfolk, Virginia to Los Angeles. The penal institutions then were not so generous as to offer a map of any kind for fear of providing the route for escape. The lyrics feature the singer, the poor boy, traveling from Norfolk, Virginia to the Promised Land, which in this case is Los Angeles, California, and the song mentions several notable American cities as he passes on his way. And now, almost a decade later, Elvis released a version of the song around the same time as the band, and his version brought more acclaim to the song and hit high on the charts. Take a listen to his rendition. Real Marcus says about the contents of the song, this is the map as the poor boy sets off from Norfolk, Virginia to discover the country, a journey that moves from poverty to wealth, from a bus to a plane, setting down in LAX. All pop music takes America as a subject, whether winding towards tragedy or toward an even sweeter harmony, runs off his mountain. When it came time for the band to take their own look at the promised land, we have Levon Helm straddle the lead vocal. And like he did on a lot of earlier records by the band, he played rhythm guitar. Take a listen. Richard Manuel takes up the drum kit, providing a steady beat, and Rick Danko gives a high driving, thumpy bass. Robbie is featured reliving his youth by ripping through with some heavy leads, all attack. And Garth Hudson is very busy as ever on those piano keys, adding his customary clavinet to the mix as well. Now Ben Keith was potentially involved in this session, Keith had been a successful pedal steel player in Nashville for much of the 50s and 60s before transitioning to being a multi instrumentalist with various rock and pop groups like Neil Young. The, it's speculated that the talk box solo at the end of the song is Keith on pedal steel. Take a lesson. Now overall, the band provided a very straightforward cover of this song with massive energy. And to follow that up, we are treated to The Great Pretender. Originally, it was a hit for The Platters, a successful early rock and roll vocal group. The Platters had been able to bridge the sound between pre-rock Tin Pan Alley tradition and the new rock and roll style. The Platters were also the first black group of Americans to be accepted as a major chart group. When their song My Prayer hit in 1955, it went straight to number one in the US and number one on the R&B charts, making them the first black group to ever have a number one on the pop single charts. The Platters looked to compound their success on the charts and songwriter Buck Ram was tasked with writing a new hit. Ram had been one of BMI's top five songwriters along the likes of Paul Simon, Chris Christopherson, Jimmy Webb, and Paul McCartney. Here is Ram on remembering writing The Great Pretender. The a man from Mercury said, You had a big hit, we need another tune. I said, I've got just the tune. I thought quickly and said, The Great Pretender. I hadn't even written it yet. I went back to my hotel room, went to the washroom, and 30 minutes later, wrote The Great Pretender. Tony Williams, the lead singer, didn't want to sing it because it was a hillbilly tune. The Platters ended up singing it, and they were able to blend the R&B and country flavorings of the songwriter well, which was appealing to the band as it spoke to their own sensibilities. And like mentioned, the original had Tony Williams on lead vocal. Take a listen here. The Great Pretender wasn't necessarily an easy song to cover. Tony Williams' vocal was very powerful, making Richard Manuel one of the only people on earth who could touch it and do it justice. Take a listen to Richard for comparison. Musically, they kept the structure of the song very similar to the original, with Richard also taking on piano. You have Levon on drums, Rick on bass, and Robbie on electric guitar, fairly standard work. Garth Hudson adds organ, which is elevating the tune, and according to some sources, John Simon was also brought into the sessions to play baritone sax. The Great Pretender once again shows the power and the presence of Richard Manuel on this album. Robert Palmer agrees and writes as much. Once again, the band shows an uncanny ability to match the singer with the song as Richard tackles the Platter's oldie, transitioning it from the East Coast Sweet Harmony idiom into a grittier, but no less affecting style. Next after that is Fats Domino's I'm Ready. Released in May of 1959, it was a moderate hit in the United States and in the UK. Domino's work had been something that the band had visited on multiple occasions. Fats had been one of the earliest pioneers of rock and roll music, as a singer and a pianist, as well as a prolific songwriter. From the early mid fifties through the early sixties, he had several hits and had sold close to 65 million records. His 1949 song, The Fat Man, is widely believed to be the first million dollar selling rock and roll record. Now, let's take a listen to Domino's version of I'm Ready.
1: Well, I'm ready.
0: Now, the band first visited Domino's material with Ronnie Hawkins, where they played Domino's song, Sick and Tired. Robbie had also ended up visiting the Fat Man on his solo material, and Rick had produced Bobby Charles' album featuring the song Grow Too Old with Richard Manuel joining in. And now when it came time to I'm Ready for the band to record it, it was fairly straightforward rocker, but Levon enjoyed it particularly. Take a listen. (laughs) ¶¶ great take on the song. It's sharp, it's punchy, Levon provides a great vocal and musically it's very on point. You can really see the solid band arrangement compared to the more vocal focused original version. There isn't anything particularly groundbreaking about the band's version but you know that Levon sure enjoys himself for that number and that's enough for me. Next is Saved.
2: I used to smoke, I used to drink, I used to smoke, drink, and dance the hoochie I used to smoke and drink.
1: Smoke and drink, and there's the hoochie Oh yeah. But now I'm standing on this corner, praying for me and you. I, 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 that's
2: I'm to...
0: As Nick Deriso states in his review of the cover by the band, not many rock bands would approach something like a Libra and Stoller song Saved. Originally a top 40 billboard hit for Laverne Baker in 1961. But not many had an ace in the hole like vocalist Richard Manuel or a history quite like the bands. Now, Derizio was right. Laverne Baker had a successful R&B career as a singer in the 50s and early 60s with hits like Jim Dandy, Tweedledee, and I Cried a Tear. She was also a pioneer of the new rock and roll movement and was heavily promoted by New York DJ Alan Freed, who often packaged her songs on his show from Cleveland, Ohio. Big songwriters, on the other hand, Lieber and Stoller, had written the tongue-in-cheek number from the perspective of someone who had lived a fast, loose life, but now was saved and standing on the corner preaching to everybody who would listen. Baker released the song in 61 and it hit number 39 on the U.S. Billboard charts. Take a listen.
2: Take a
1: listen.
0: The Lieber and Stoller number is the only tune on the band's album featuring white writers. The song is quite gospel, more or less taking piece of the tradition and being in a very similar vein. Thematically, it made sense for the band, especially Richard, who seemed to even fit the song's character. He lived in the character of the song and he really feel it in his vocals, yelps and all. And from the perspective of including it on the album, it had the connection to the original Cleveland-based Moondog rock and roll party radio programs that was the inspiration for the album take a listen to the band's version
2: I used to smoke I used to drink I used to smoke drink and dance the music.
0: Richard really takes command of yet another number, a strong and beautiful vocal performance paired with his piano playing. Levon fills the drum kit with a very showy outing, going hard on the snare with liberal use of his cymbals and that big bass sound. You have Rick Danko on bass providing energy. Really, Rick amps up this from the original, giving the bass a little bit more jive, and Robbie Robertson is on the electric guitar providing a large amount of fun with the little guitar licks he does. It's a great spotlight for his playing. Take a listen. Now, the last song on the album is the Sam Cooke classic, A Change Is Gonna Come. Released in mid-February of 1964 as a B-side, Cooke wrote the song based on personal events in his life, such as his group being turned away at a white-only motel in Louisiana, which led to his unjustifiable arrest that outraged many in the country. Additionally, Cooke had heard Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind in
2: 1963. How many roads must a man walk down? Before you call him a man, how many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they are river band? The answer, my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind
0: cook was greatly moved that such a poignant song about racism in america could come from someone who is not black and was also ashamed he had not yet written something like that himself Cook now felt compelled to write a song about the struggle of African Americans and themes that pertain to the civil rights movement. Take a listen. Musically, each verse is different, with the horns carrying the first verse, the strings the second, and the timpani carrying the bridge. The French horn present in the recording was intended to convey a sense of melancholy. Originally though, when the song was released, it wasn't a hit like others for Cook. But the sentiment of the song and the arrangement made it one of Cook's staples, and a classic. Now when it came time for the band to do their version, it was Rick Danko taking the lead vocal spot. Many would believe that this would be a Richard Manuel song with the very difficult vocal duties. But Rick Danko is no slouch. He reaches those highs and reels in the beautiful performance. Take a listen here. a wonderful job on a tough number not only musically but because of the cultural significance of the song you have a group of white guys singing a song that helped define the african-american experience in america at the time ultimately it may not be a song that you would cover today and it remains a testament to the band by and large owed their influence to black musicians who paved the way before them and they never really hid from that like some of their other contemporaries Musically, Rick also plays acoustic guitar on the track, something that he continues to do more and more with the band as he was originally a guitar player. Levon occupies that bass guitar in a rare appearance, giving the bass as much love as the track would allow. And Richard sits behind the drum kit, playing a soft snare. Robbie accents on his electric guitar with dreamy licks. And lastly, Garth occupies the organ, giving us a unique intro and beautiful restrained leads throughout. Take a listen. In
2: that ass-
0: And with that, the band had completed their fifth studio album. Increasingly harder and a gamble that they weren't sure was going to pay off regardless they had made it through. When it came time to package the album, the band went to Edward Casper to design the cover. The band was introduced to Casper through Bob Cato who had painted their cover for Stage Fright and was in charge of designing the packaging for Moondog Matinee. Casper had done a lot of painting and photography for Sports Illustrated. Cato suggested that Casper could help capture the band's past. The painting depicts the entire band on the cover at the Cabbage Town Cafe. Cabbage Town is an area in East Toronto, until recently was pretty run down in a poor area, in the home of Robbie Robertson as a child. The cafe was regular stomping grounds for the Hawks. There's graffiti next to each character with their names, as well as the names Big Albert, which is reference to Albert Grossman, and Sunny Boy, who was their friend and idol, Sunny Boy Williamson. The cafe has a title reading Juke Joint, rock and roll rmb and c and w flanked by a pool hall and the hawk shop selling instruments outside the pool hall sits richard Manuel's 1953 thunderbird it's interesting to note where each character sits in the painting robbie sits alone isolated in the cafe gazing out the jukebox richard is also by himself lost almost in the shadows leaning against the window Rick is by himself reading country western hits, and Levon and Garth are chatting in the doorway sharing a Coca-Cola. Levon also dones his Arkansas Razorback shirt. It kind of explicitly tells us about the band at the time, the divide, and where people's interests lie. The band took the album to Mark Harmon for mixing, like they had done on previous efforts, and Bob Ludwig once again for mastering. Ludwig had mastered music from Big Pink, and you can learn more about that in our episode on Big Pink and he had worked on albums by Creedence Clearwater, Revival, The Rolling Stones, and Led Zeppelin. The album's producer credit was taken by the band as they didn't really have anybody in that producer role. Instead, they used engineers like Jay Ranolucci, John Wilson, and Mark Harmon to fulfill the engineering spots. When Moondog Matinee was released on October 15th of 1973, it went to number 23 on the US charts. A far cry from success, the album didn't sell very well. Interestingly, the way in which the band positioned the album was it was a throwback to their days as a club band playing with Ronnie Hawkins. Robertson said to Rolling Stone, A great portion of this album is our old nightclub act that we played 12 years ago. Gee, wouldn't it be fun for us anyway to go into the studio and put a lot of those tunes down that we used to do? And Levon echoed that pretty much, saying, Why don't we do our old nightclub act? I forgot who said it, but how we came up with our next record. However, when you take a look at the Hawks' history and their many bootleg set lists and songs out there, many of the songs that appear on Moondog Matinee didn't appear in their earlier set lists. For one, Holy Cow and A Change Is Gonna Come weren't released during the band's club period. Thus, the band continued their myth-building in full effect here. However, most critics of Moondog saw through the facade. David Marsh was particularly harsh saying, Moondog Matinee was a misguided oldies album with obvious and trite selections redeemed mostly by pianist and vocalist Richard Manuel singing on The Great Pretender. And Lenny Kaye said in his review, Moondog Matinee remains a flimsy work, a collection of B-sides that are enjoyable as they are forgotten in the context of the group's larger concerns. This is not helped by the band's gift for understatement, which, though it enhances the group's own material, maneuvers at cross-purposes with the drift of the album. A change is going to come. The unbearably lovely Sam Cooke tune loses much of its emotive power as a result, while the third man theme becomes merely a pastiche of a Fellini-esque Muzak. They're on firmer ground when they lay back and rock and roll, as with Mystery Train or Chuck Berry's The Promised Land, the latter a sterling evocation of Edward Casper's brilliant Razorback cover painting, 55, T-Bird and all. A big mouthful there from Lenny Kay. However, while certain critics had no taste for Moondog Matinee, many others enjoyed it. Robert Criscow, who until this point was quite lukewarm on the band, enjoyed it, saying, I regard this album not as an aesthetic reverse, but as an uncommonly well-selected, performed bunch of oldies. Not as much good tunes as on stage right, but the lyrics are better. And Mike Gold said, What the band expressed on Moondog was a faith in rock and roll as a living tradition, which could be invoked as well as added to. And Chris Morrow said in his retrospective it wouldn't be constructed merely as a cash-in on trendy nostalgia moondog matinee was a personal project as the albums that preceded it it was the group's trip back to the roots that raised them the album itself was programmed like a club set a mixture of rockers and ballads with a break song third Man theme smack in the middle it is a full-blown tribute to music they played as rock apprentices and the environment they flourished in and with that the album was out the band weren't really in much of a different place than they were when they started recording it. There was no tour to support the album, and the band was now beginning to split geographically between the two coasts. And there was really, again, no plan forward. Well, until an old friend entered the picture again, and so a new plan formed around a collaborative album, a massive stadium tour that would truly test the band once again to see if they had what it took to be big-time stars. Thank you again for listening to the Band of History. Moondog Matinee Part 2. Our first two-parter episode. Uh, If you didn't, check out Part 1. I don't know why you're still listening, but you can listen to that. We released it a few weeks ago. Um, Again, one of the reasons why I split this into two was because I'm talking so much about the songs, but I'm talking so much about the original versions of the songs or other versions of the songs that were popular. Uh, You know, this was a very interesting album. I had obviously listened to Moondog Matinee... Quite a bit uh, prior to researching this episode, but um, I really never understood the full extent of the selection of the songs um, outside of kind of surface level things. And really through this, I, it it came to me like it did to many of the critics at the time, and in retrospectives that this is Richard Emanuel's album through and through. Uh, there's great playing by all the members, obviously, but Richard really shines here, and I think really because. A lot of the band's early career is dominated by, you know, their, their amazing songwriting, uh, especially from Robbie and Richard, and kind of their genre-defining music on their first few albums. But through and through, above anything else, Richard Emanuel was one of the best singers of the era and of all time, and this album really highlights that uh you don't really have to wade through all the songwriting and all the other things that make the band great you really just focus on the performance here and there's really no better performer vocally than richard Manuel. and it's interesting how all of these albums as we go through them you can classify certain albums as certain people's albums uh so that that's been really interesting to see that this is richard's quote-unquote album so i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast as always you can find us online everywhere uh most prominently, we are on Instagram at The Band Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at The Band Podcast and on Facebook at The Band Podcast. We post there regularly photos from the archives, tons of great historical context along with that. You can check some of our past episodes out, including interviews that we've done with director Daniel Rohr, who did a documentary called Once were Brothers, or our interview with the fan photographer Elliot Landy. We've got some great interviews coming up soon. Uh, as always, We've launched a Patreon. You can check that out. If you're interested in donating to the show and getting some great perks, we've really launched that now and are starting to really promote it. You can go to the band's web, the Band Podcast website, thebandpodcast.com, and you'll see a donate button. And you can go there and click it, and you can read all about the amazing perks and different things that you can get involved with. But as always, thank you again for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next time my name is damon
2: carter aka dem one and i'm nate leblanc and we are two-thirds of the crew that hosts the dad bod rap pod
1: our third co-host is internationally acclaimed hip-hop writer david ma
2: as the name of the show suggests dad bod rap pod is a podcast where men of a certain age discuss debate and dissect rap music
1: While we are somewhat classicist in our tastes and grew up listening to hip-hop from the 80s until now, we are also interested in the music's present and future.
2: Over the past 115 episodes, we have been interviewed rap legends like Prince Paul, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien, Roxanne Shante, Cool Keith, DJ Premier, and even the proto-rap group The Last Poets, just to name a few.
1: We also make it a point to talk to writers, commentators, and creatives shaping the genre. We've interviewed journalists and best-selling authors like Nathaniel Friedman, Jeff Weiss, Hanif Abdul-Rakib, and Adam Mansback.
2: And as Nate mentioned, even though we are products of the 80s, 90s, we take time out to talk to some of the most important voices in rap today, groups and individuals like Little Brother, Open Mike Eagle, Billy Woods, and Rap Ferrer. If you don't recognize any of those names, that's okay, because what we love most on this podcast is to introduce old school fans of rap music to new music that we know you will love. New episodes
1: every week on Thursday, we are the Dad Bod